You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Karen Holland from Providence College. Her paper was entitled Finding Her Voice, Joan Fitzgerald's Petition Letters to William Cecil. Thank you very much uh, for your attendance this afternoon. Um, And as the other two speakers, I'm also working with letters, a very small number, um, five letters actually uh, for Joan Fitzgerald, um, and I'll be looking at three of them uh, in more detail today. Um, In the mid-16th century, Joan Fitzgerald, the Irish Countess of Warman and Desmond, adopted several voices in her petition letters to her acquaintance, the English royal official William Cecil. Though Joan's three letters preserved in the state papers constitute only a small sample, they evidence political, economic, and personal motivations for her suits. They further represent a variety of request-making categories, letters written on behalf of oneself or one's client, and as a social superior to an inferior. Finally, they illustrate an evolution in language as Jones sought favorable reception for her requests. Women suitors often employed female stereotypes, the poor widow, the good mother, the dutiful wife, to gain sympathy and acquiescence from their male readers. The countess, however, did not fully exploit these tropes. Rather, in her July 1547 and April 1562 letters, Joan relied on the male vocabulary of political friendship, land transactions, and client patronage in writing to Cecil, her then social inferior. It was only in her last correspondence, dated July of 1563, that Joan entreated Cecil in deferential language and presented herself as a loving wife and mother. The trajectory of Joan Fitzgerald's letters from self-confident to humble not only demonstrates her search for an appropriate petitionary script, but also illustrates her perceived loss of power in her political relationship with William Cecil as he advanced in the Crown's favor and she failed to fully realize her suits. Joan Fitzgerald, um, circa 1514 to 1565, was the daughter and heir general of James Fitzgerald, the 11th Earl of Desmond. In 1532, she married James Butler, the future 9th Earl of Ormond, and one of her family's traditional adversaries. Butler died in London in 1545, leaving Joan a wealthy widow with seven young sons to raise. After a brief marriage to Sir Francis Bryan, the English Lord Justice of Ireland, Joan married for a third time in 1551 to English um, to sorry to Gerald Fitzgerald, who later became the 15th Earl of Desmond. Contemporaries in age, Joan's husband Gerald and eldest son Thomas Butler were sworn enemies 
who continued the centuries-old Desmond Orman feud, despite Jones' concerted effort to establish peace between the two young men. Jones' correspondent, William Cecil, was born into a gentry family in Lincolnshire in 1520. Educated at St. John's, Cambridge, and Gray's Inn, he entered Lord Protector Somerset's employ in 1547 as his secretary and master of requests. By September of 1550, he had become one of Edward VI's secretaries of state and was knighted by the king the following year. Continuing to rise in prominence, Elizabeth I appointed Cecil as her secretary of state on the first day of her reign in November of 1558. Cecil was created Lord Burley by Elizabeth in 1571. He had married Elizabeth Cook as his second wife in December of 1545. Mildred, I'm sorry, Mildred Cook. Mildred uh, was known for both her exceptional learning and her ability to influence her husband, acting as an intermediary between petitioners and the secretary. If we look at petition letters, they were formal in nature and followed acceptable conventions of format and language established in writing manuals so as not to offend the potential benefactor. These letters needed to be well-received in order to produce the desired result. In the early and mid-16th century, Erasmus's work, De Constribuendus Epistolus, published in 1522 and used to teach letter writing in English grammar schools and universities, was the standard. In this text, Erasmus expanded upon the medieval epistolatory formula of the salutatio, or the greeting, uh, followed by the exordium, which was designed to capture the goodwill of the recipient, the narratio, the body of the letter, the petitio, or the special request, and the conclusio. In detailing the letter of request, Erasmus distinguishes between the direct and indirect methods of petitioning. When it is likely that a request will be granted, the direct method of openly asking for what is desired should be employed. Otherwise, the indirect approach is appropriate. First, the need for the requested outcome should be exaggerated while pointing out that the suitor has done nothing to merit this request. Still, the addressee's goodness, a term we see quite often, has often resulted in undeserved grants in the past. In either case, Erasmus says, we shall use every means to secure the goodwill of the person to whom we make a difficult request recalling with gratitude his kindness to ourselves and to others. If necessary, we shall include appeals to those things or persons that we know to have influence over him. Finally, we shall promise to repay it with interest, offering ourselves and our possessions to him. Uh, Marie-Louise Coulihan offers a succinct summary of Erasmus's model for successful petitioning. Quote, formal salutation, deferential language, establishment of patronage relations, narration of argument, the concluding promise of a reciprocal favor. In addition to its structure, the language employed in Suda's letters was equally important. The use of either the vocabulary of deference or of friendship and quality was indicative of the social status and authority of both the writer and the addressee. In order to properly acknowledge the honor and the rank of the socially superior recipient, deferential language was required. Salutations such as, quote, my very good Lord, and right honorable my very good Lord, expressed appropriate humility. Closings including, quote, 
your lordships assured and most bound, and your lordships humbly to command, promised the future service the suitor would provide as reciprocation. The body of the letter further reflected supplication and obedience through the choice of the verbs beseech and crave, often prefaced by I most humbly. On the other hand, referencing the friendship that existed between the writer and the recipient established a more equal relationship. Salutations often took the form of good master or sir, which were courteous, though not elaborate or deferential. Informal closings, such as your own assured friend or your loving friend, were common. Emphasis placed on these ties of friendships suggested remuneration based on personal amity rather than feudal service. James Daybell argues that this language of political friendship and reciprocity was, quote, a traditionally male language, which found particular expression in aristocratic women's requests for favor for their retainers and clients. Though patronage was viewed as a male preserve, circumstances, a husband away at war imprisoned or widowhood, often required early modern noblewomen to assume a role similar to male patrons. The authority and influence inherent in this vocabulary was absent in the female language and stereotype employed by other women petitioners. It was seen as useful for women to appear weak, vulnerable, and intellectually and physically inferior. They portrayed themselves as impoverished widows and suffering wives and mothers with the goal of evoking pity on the part of those to whom they appealed. Indeed, Erasmus had counseled stirring the emotions of the reader by citing, quote, the loneliness, need, grief, and misery of our friends and ourselves, and the power, fierceness, impudence, and audacity of our enemies. Like language, manuscript space was also used to express deference. Space between the salutation and the body of the letter, and between the text and the subscription indicated the writer's respect for the addressee. A signature placed at the extreme right-hand corner of the page was a clear indication of subordination, as was pointed out yesterday. The absence of this spacing was a statement of the sender's social superiority, authority, or wealth. Letters between friends lacked this gesture, with Jonathan, which Jonathan Gibson terms significant space. In these letters, the closing and signature followed immediately on the text of the letter. Turning to Joan, in order to effectively manage her business affairs and her son's inheritances after the death of her first husband, Joan relocated to England, and on July 6th of 1547, she addressed a petition regarding the Abbey of Leash to Master of Request Cecil from Lambeth Palace. While the Court of the of requests handled disputes over land and tenements, Joan's petition to Cecil was rare for a noblewoman, as most suits to this court were brought by the poor. However, Cecil's master, Somerset, did have a reputation for defending widows because of their vulnerability. Joan's petition to Cecil is a letter to a social inferior and, quote, friend. Joan's salutation, good Mr. Cecil, her closing, your bounden friend, and the superscription, to mine assured loving friend, all suggest the existence of an amicable relationship between the two. The body of her letter further attests to, quote, a hearty friendship, as Joan had apparently been the beneficiary of former acts of kindness by Cecil, referencing his, quote, accustomed gentleness that she will not forget. The position of Joan's signature on the manuscript page is also significant. 
Joan's autograph comes immediately following the last line of the text with no spacing, further reflecting a familiarity between the writer and the recipient and the writer's superior social standing. As paper was an expensive commodity, Joan's wealth is also displayed by her use of an entire manuscript page for her short five-sentence request. The direct, one-third of a page letter, opens with a standard greeting after most hearty commendations. Joan then proceeds immediately to the point of her petition, with little attempt to elicit Cecil's goodwill. Quote, I beseech you, according your accustomed gentleness, to procure my Lord's grace, Lord Protector Somerset, change not his conclusion about the Abbey of Leash. Though the Countess beseeches, she does not do so humbly. Hoping that Cecil's past favor will be repeated, Joan wished to ensure that her own nephew, Bonavie Fitzpatrick's suit for the Abbey lands would not succeed. Joan indicates that she had already written to Somerset and now wants Cecil to reiterate her petition and influence his employer. Though widowed and living removed from family and supporters in Ireland, Joan does not take the opportunity to elicit Cecil's pity by creating a vivid picture of the consequences of her petition's failure, as Erasmus had recommended. Eschewing female language and stereotypes, she makes no specific reference to the value of the lands or the potential loss of rents. Rather, her simple justification for this request is that the loss of leash would, quote, much hinder me, end quote, and ideally her friend would not wish for this result. Joan's desire to establish a beneficial network of English supporters and to influence the royal administration on her behalf is evident in the conclusion of her letter, where she notes that she has sent a poor token to Cecil's wife, Mildred, with whom she must also have been acquainted. Barbara Harris defines a token as, quote, a personal belonging or treasured possession, such as a favorite piece of jewelry. The intimate nature of a token enhanced the relationship between the giver and the receiver, and this friendship was further maintained by the expectation that the token would be returned at some point in the future. Felicity Heal further notes the implications of these small gifts accompanying letters. Beyond expressing the goodwill of the sender, they could, quote, underline a request and be freighted with political meaning. With this gift, Joan adhered to Erasmus's counsel that the petitioner appeal to persons who have influence over the actions and decisions of the recipient. Joan's petition to retain the Abbey, originally granted to the butlers in 1541, may initially have been successful, as there is no record of a grant of the property in either the patent rolls or the fiance for the year 1547. Abbey Leash was next leased in 1551 to Matthew King. A resumption of the traditional Desmond Ormond feud in the fall of 1561 prompted Queen Elizabeth to summon Joan's husband, Gerald, and son, Thomas, to London in January of 1562 in order to eliminate the contention between them and ensure their obedience. When Gerald finally arrived in London four months after his summons, Elizabeth placed him in the custody of the English Lord Treasurer. Aware that her husband's delay would be ill-received at court, on April 24, 1562, Joan wrote to William Cecil from the Desmond Lordship at Yall. As it is possible that this letter accompanied Gerald on his voyage to meet the Queen, it might be expected that Joan would employ female language or stereotypes in hopes that Cecil's advocacy on her husband's behalf might mitigate Elizabeth's response. 
Instead, the petition makes no direct response to Gerald, but rather aimed at enhancing Joan's patronage network by obtaining the religious house of Greyfriars Nick Cork for her client, the Desmond attorney, Andrew Skiddy. Skiddy was also a member of Gerald's departing retinue and the bearer of this correspondence to Cecil. As Skiddy had initially instituted his request for Greyfriars several years prior in 1559, Joan's intervention at this juncture could be seen as providing compensation for Skiddy acting as a loyal spokesman for Gerald. This second extant letter, which serves as a reminder of the relationship existing between Joan and the Cecils, and also as an indirect plea for intervention, conflates the language of friendship with that of deference. Though the Countess of Ormond and Desmond still outranked Cecil, who had been knighted in 1551, her greeting, Right Honorable, reflects a new formality consistent with Cecil's rise in Elizabeth's government. This is tempered by Joan's exordium, which reminds Cecil of friendly gentleness that she had experienced from him during her time in England some 15 years earlier. Her postscript combines the two modes of address, referring to Cecil as both your honor and my good friend. Quote, heartily beseeching your honor therein to stand my good friend as I have ever found you. In Joan's closing, she remains Cecil's, quote, own assured friend, but now adds the deferential, your honor's own assured friend. The lack of space between the closing of the letter and Joan's subscription further indicate informality. And Joan again sends her hearty commendations to Mildred. In requesting Greyfriars for Skitty, Joan avoids the language of supplication in favor of the language of political friendship. Rather than beseeching, Joan contends that it is her desire that Skitty receive this grant. As the letter recounts, Skitty was known to Cecil, having been the beneficiary of Cecil's great goodness in the past, and Joan hoped he would be so again in the future. In addition to her prayers that, quote, God, whom I beseech to send your honor happy and fortunate success in all your proceedings, the Countess here includes a more tangible office of reciprocity. Quote, your gentleness therein to be extended shall bind me to do you or any friend of yours any service or pleasure that shall be in my power. By offering service, Joan is indicating that she possesses the authority to fulfill that promise. As the bearer of the letter to Cecil, Skitty had, the important, had an important role to play. In the presence of the addressee, he had the opportunity to elaborate upon Joan's message. While the Countess had not specifically attempted to explain her husband's behavior or advocated leniency for him, Skitty certainly could. As a member of De Desmond's retinue, Skitty remained in England with Gerald and could continue to be his voice. Either the impression that Skitty made at court or Joan's intervention, or both, were successful, as Skitty did receive the grant of the House of Friars Preachers sometime in 1562. Six weeks after Gerald's departure from England, Joan was officially informed of his detention, even receiving correspondence from Queen Elizabeth. In the upcoming year, Gerald submitted to the Queen, subscribed to articles governing his conduct, and was pardoned by her. Yet a year later, Desmond was still sequestered, and rumors that Joan was responsible for his continued detainment seemed increasingly plausible to Gerald, especially considering her son Thomas had returned to Ireland some months earlier. According to court gossip, Joan, quote, was the chief stayer of my lord, her husband, in England in taking her son's part 
again his lord touching their variances. In favoring her son over her husband, Joan had reportedly written to Cecil on Thomas's behalf. When word of the slander reached Joan in Ireland, she wrote to her old acquaintance, Cecil, on July the 22nd, 1563. While Joan opens this letter with the same deferential salutation she employed in April of 1562, right honorable after my right hearty commendations, the remainder of her petition introduces a vocabulary of entreaty not previously employed. The countess refers deferentially to Cecil as your honor no less than eight times. She also now most heartily beseeches Cecil's assistance. The exordium from a year ago extolling Cecil's friendly gentleness is also absent from this letter. References to Cecil's goodness have now been replaced by an appeal to his courtesy, a term more respectful of his enhanced position in Elizabeth's court and suggestive of the act of curtsying to one's superior. Unlike past subscriptions, her now subservient closing also makes no reference to their past friendship, but offers future remuneration based on Cecil's command. Quote, your honor assuredly to command in what I may. Joan further elicits pity, according to Erasmus's formula of citing the grief and misery of our friends and the audacity of our enemies. She urgently narrates the malicious rumors are being spread by certain ill-disposed persons. She beseeches Cecil to stand in her defense. Describing herself as a stereotypical loving wife and mother, Joan pledged she had never taken her son's part over her husband's in their feud. Quote, as now I protest before God, I never thought nor meant any such thing against my Lord, but always wishing them both to be perfect friends as two whom I love as myself. Desperate to convince Gerald of her fidelity, Joan further suggests that the entire Privy Council could be called upon to testify to her innocence. Undoubtedly, she includes herself among Gerald's servants and friends who are in despair of his return. Joan concludes with a direct plea for Gerald's freedom and a promise to Cecil regarding her husband's future behavior, something she had not attempted in her, future in her earlier communication. While it is unknown if Joan's letter reassured Gerald of her commitment, it did not speed his return. He was finally released from the Crown's custody and returned to Ireland in November of 1563 after more than a year and a half in detention. Joan's final extent request illustrates the nature of the petition and the overwhelming desire to see it fulfilled could play an important role in the language used and the persona employed. Writing to one's social inferior and friend requesting grants of land for oneself or one's client, as Joan did in 1547 and 1562, was one thing. Suing for the freedom of one's rebellious husband was another. In the first instances, the male language of business and friendship was appropriate and apparently effective. But while Cecil's position at court had not advanced significantly between Joan's letter of 1562 and that of 1563, the personal nature of Joan's plea for Cecil's intervention and Gerald's return required a new vocabulary. Desmond's long detention, compounded by memories of her first husband's death in London, surely influenced Joan's entreaty. Erasmus's formula of deferential language the evocation of pity and open-ended remuneration were now viewed as the best methods of achieving the Countess's desired end. Joan's humility, however, was ultimately unsuccessful in the face of what Queen Elizabeth referred to as Gerald's 
quote, disobedience and obstinacy to the crown. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.